Well, we're going to go this way for the moment until Rich gets that plugged back in. Um, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church again. Uh, I'm Brian. I'm the worship and arts director here. If you don't know who I am, um, I forgot my guitar this week, so Rich took over. JK's, I planned this. <laughs> um, just making this sermon up as we go. Uh, I'm thrilled to be up here this week uh, exploring and wrestling uh, with the text and who we are as the people of God. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping uh, with us in this space, in this uh, collective body. Uh, this is the second week of the Advent season, the season of waiting, of expecting, of anticipating the coming of God into this world. Uh, it's the beginning of the year in the church calendar, the start of this year-long process of narrating the story of the scriptures in the church. I love Advent. Uh, I know Greg last week said this was his favorite time of year, and he and I both share that love for the Advent season. I'm not as big of a fan of the gray and the rain as he is because I'm not as much of a Viking, um, but I do love the coziness and the darkness and the warmth that we search for in the middle of this, this colder season. And my sort of angsty postmodern millennial self loves the tension that comes with both the Lenten season and the season of Advent, the waiting, the anticipation, the feeling of being caught in the space between despair and hope. It all feels very at home for me. Uh, these rhythms and patterns are super helpful for quieting the chaos and the uncertainty around me and within me. Uh, and I've loved being able to be part of bringing the observance of these holidays and these rhythms to our community. Uh, each year, our Advent series follows some sort of pattern of four themes. There's four weeks, so we have four, four uh, weekly themes. It's good planning. Um, whether it's joy, peace, hope, love, or our series last year on Isaiah and the four words, uh, return, relearn, rebuild slash restore is the same week, and we had two words, so it counts as one, uh, and receive... Or uh, the Advent Conspiracy from several years back. Uh, this year we're looking at the different voices of Advent, the different phrases or keywords that show up through the biblical text that appear in the Gospels or in the Old Testament that point to the Advent, the coming of God into this world and in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, voices and phrases like keep watch, prepare, magnify, and fear not, along with uh, go, which we'll look at on Christmas Eve. Last week, Greg talked about this phrase, keep watch. Uh, this phrase that indicates waiting, being ready. Uh, it's a phrase that's tied to shepherds, to caring for sheep. It's a phrase that for us, that's for us noticing and moving on what God is inviting us to. Today, our phrase is prepare. Uh, this word evokes some things for us. At least it did for me, uh, and it's also one of the first things that we hear in the Gospel of Mark. It's a word that's tied to some of the earliest moments in Jesus' adult life and ministry. But before we get too far into this, let's pray. God, settle our hearts, our minds to hear you. Awaken us to your movement and your presence among us. Help us to see you... Uh, more fully, more robustly, more dynamically. Help us to hear the call, the invitation that you are offering to us. 
pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, like I said, this week we're looking at the word prepare. Uh, It's a bit of a word that carries a lot of imagery for us, a bit of a loaded word, especially this time of year. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, probably most of us participated in some form or fashion in Thanksgiving. Uh, I know for myself and for many of us, there was a lot uh, to do leading up to it. And I also know for myself that I tend to not take nearly as much time as I should uh, to get ready for things. I may not be as wise in those areas as could be helpful. Uh, I may or may not have gotten to late Tuesday afternoon before I remembered to brine our turkey. Uh, And I was still out buying things on Thursday morning um, and was not the only one. (laughs) So... Yeah, but it doesn't stop there. There's no end to the jokes and the commentary on how the Christmas season in broader culture is now encroaching on probably, what, like the 4th of July at this point? Uh, but the reality is, though, that we've barely cleared the plates from the table before we start hearing Christmas songs and seeing ads for deep discounts on stuff. And Christmas trees are acquired and plans are being made. The preparation for the holiday season that is dominated by Christmas on the mainstream cultural front begins. We must get ready, we must make, we must arrange, we must prepare. It feels anxious, doesn't it? The way preparation gets talked about feels like a list of tasks and more stuff for us to do, and just busy. Almost in direct contrast to how we've talked about the Advent season over the past few years, we've talked about it as a time of calm against the busyness of the season, like a deep breath. Or like a time to anticipate, to hope for. But to prepare, to rush around and fill up our lives like that, like the busyness and chaos of the holiday season. How is that helpful? It's my hope this morning that we can hear both a counter-narrative to the one of busyness and an invitation into something else. Something more robust, something uh, hopefully more healthy than asking us to just take on one more thing and adding more craziness and guilt to how much we're already doing. We just said a minute ago that the word prepare is one that we hear throughout the gospel narratives, especially uh, when we're talking about John the Baptist. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all introduce John the Baptist in a similar fashion. He's a wild dude out in the wilderness, someone who seems a little off and dresses in uh, animal skins and eats bugs and preaches a message of repentance of wake up and look around you because the kingdom of God is coming. We don't really need to look at all four Gospels, um, but for an example, we'll read Matthew 3, 1 to 3. I'll be reading out of the NRSV, and you're welcome to open your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen behind me. So Matthew 3, 1 to 3 says, In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This may seem like a fairly straightforward few sentences, right? John identified, whether by himself or by the author, depending on the gospel. Um, Some of them have him saying, I'm the one who's saying prepare the way, and other ones are saying, like, this is the guy who we're talking about. Uh, But he's, he's identified as the one that Isaiah is talking about. Of course, Isaiah was talking about Jesus, right? Well, maybe. The Gospels sure utilize Isaiah in this way. 
Uh, I personally actually rarely say the Bible is clear on much, uh, but this is one of the cases where, yes, the authors of the Gospels are clearly utilizing Isaiah to point to Jesus, utilizing the Old Testament to very intentionally tell the story of Jesus. And it starts with John. And as always is the case when talking about the scriptures, there's much going on beneath the surface. Uh, As one of my biblical studies professors always said, the text without context is just pretext for proof text. (laughs) We can't understand the text without looking at what's going on around it and what the authors may have been referencing and what the the larger cultures are doing, because to do otherwise risks too heavily reading our own understanding into the text at the cost of what is actually being said. Context is king. The background, the larger stories, the traditions that are ingrained in the people who these books were originally written for, there are deep undercurrents in the words that are used in the biblical text, especially in the Gospels. And this little nugget of introducing John is no exception. The imagery, the vocabulary, the phrasing are all intentionally used to connect with readers' minds and hearts and personhoods and cultural identities, to draw out deeply rooted ideas and concepts and stories. This method of storytelling of appealing to the stories and themes that we're familiar with on broad cultural levels, actually still exists today. Uh, If you think about the movies we watch, the stories that are told there often follow very similar patterns. I'm going to take a second and nerd out completely on you, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, But how many of us saw the latest Star Wars movie? Not the ones coming out in a couple weeks, but uh, The Force Awakens. This right here. Uh... (laughs) Did I miss a slide? Nope, I didn't. Uh, These are all part of this vast universe. These movies are all part of this vast universe of stories that intersect with each other, that feed into each other. The movies are part of this huge universe of films, books, TV series uh, that tell the story of this epic space saga, specifically revolving around members of the Skywalker family and the parts they play in this story. Uh, It's a sweeping, vast narrative of the struggle of good and evil and of the chosen ones who bring balance back to the force and the universe and so on and so forth. Um, And one of the critiques that has been leveled against The Force Awakens, the most recent one, is that it really closely mirrors the narrative flow of the earlier movies, especially the first one, the one that came out in 1977. Uh, You have your good guy hiding some mysterious item from the evil bad guy, a scrappy desert dweller who's Force-sensitive. You have your roguey scoundrel. You have your gruff older mentor, and so on. It starts in a desert planet, then moves to outer space, then storming the bad guy's base while there's an attack by the good guys to try and destroy the base, and so on and so forth. It's all very similar. And for some people, uh, it seemed like it was lazy of the director to do that, like he couldn't come up with an original story. But I'd argue that this is a very intentional and superbly masterful piece of storytelling. Even though Star Wars has been fairly ubiquitous prior to this movie, it had been 10 years since we saw any films from that franchise on the big screen in 38 years since the original film came out. The story was maybe not quite as fresh as it could have been. So the filmmakers retold the story in a new way. They used similar shots, similar settings, similar characters, similar actual lines, and told the story in a new way. Even the movie poster evokes a response from us. We see that and we think, yeah, it's Star Wars. Uh, They wrote a continuation of the main story. They continued that story and introduced new characters uh, and and new plot points and um, 
a, a new direction, a new narrative arc for it, but they did it using things that we'd know, images that we'd recognize, uh, that would draw us back and immerse us in a story that so much of our culture knew already, but had maybe not been quite as fresh. This is exactly the kind of thing that the authors of the Gospels are doing. They're telling the story of Jesus using these cues and phrases and characters that the readers would know from their larger cultural narratives. And in this case, John is calling back to Isaiah, one of the most highly regarded and well-known scriptures for people during the time of Jesus. This saying, prepare the way of the Lord, it's a quote from Isaiah 40, uh, which we'll read right now. It's Isaiah 43 through 5, and it'll be behind me again. And also, I love reading scripture in community, uh, and sometimes I get tired of hearing my own voice by the end of sermons. Uh, So rather than me read this, I'd love to hear uh, one of you read it. So somebody, please read this for me when it pops up. Anybody go. There's more. Thank you. Uh, so this may feel like a bit of an info dump, but it's important stuff because this is exactly what the authors of the Gospels had in mind when they were writing. These are the cues, the deeply rooted narratives that these writers intended to evoke when John or Jesus are quoting Isaiah or the Psalms or any number of Old Testament texts, or the teachings of the rabbis at the time, or popular sayings, and so on. And for this case, for this particular phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, we, we need to talk about this concept of the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven, and we heard that in the, in the Matthew text that we just read, uh, instead of the kingdom of God, but realistically, they're, they're pretty much considered to be interchangeable terms uh, to talk about God's reign on earth. Kingdom of God is an explicit term. We have a tendency in more recent, and especially in American Christianity, to limit God's concern to the spiritual realm, to the spiritual and soul aspects of ourselves. It's like this weirdly inconsistent understandings of our bodies in this world. Uh, But that wasn't really like a thing at the time of the Gospels. Um, At that time, they believed in like a three-tiered spirituality where the dead went below and God and the angels were above and the earth was in between. Uh, But they were much, much more concerned with this life now. Uh, with their experiences as a people and a nation here. This is what's so important about the phrase kingdom of God. It's a very explicit present tense phrase that was ingrained upon the cultural psyche of the Jewish people in the early church. While it might be an explicit specific phrase meant to invoke a specific image, how it was understood depended on the school of thought that you might follow, which is actually not all that uncommon now either. Uh, The historian Josephus thought that the reign of Emperor Vespasian, Vespasian, that's a hard one to say, uh, was the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, and that Israel's scattering and the destruction of the temple were them reaping the consequences of their sins. Uh, The Habakkuk Pesher, which is basically like a kind of first century commentary on a scripture, uh, talked about the kingdom of God coming in the form of a faithful few separating themselves from like the unwashed pagan masses and meeting out God's justice upon them, and so on. 
And while there might be a bunch of different ways that they looked at what the kingdom of God is, and we have our own ways of looking at that and like understanding that and conceptualizing that today, uh, there were a few general broad strokes that we can use to paint a picture of what is meant by the phrase kingdom of God. Uh, we can describe the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God is the summation of all of Israel's longing and anguish for freedom. That God would come and bring shalom, make all things right, and rule over the world. It's a hope that's deeply rooted and ingrained in Israel's national psyche. This hope that God would act on behalf of God's people. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright talks of the kingdom of God as uh, the anguished longing of Israel for her covenant God to come into his power and rule the world in the way he always intended. And when this God became king, the whole world, the world of space and time, would at last be put to rights. The kingdom of God is this like eschatological end time, not end time, but like cosmic vision, this desire for God to act on behalf of God's people. It's about hope. And so why is this important? What does this have to do with preparation and Jesus and Advent? Well, I say that the kingdom of God has everything to do with it. This is the milieu, the context, the social rumblings beneath the Jewish people in the world that Jesus was born into. Greg mentioned last week that the space between the Old and New Testament is often thought of as 400 years of silence from God. The Jewish people were in exile again. Uh, oppressed beneath the boot of the Roman Empire, the latest in a long line of conquering kingdoms. Uh, they were lost without a home, and certainly without God acting in any way that they could recognize. They needed something to hope for. And the Old Testament texts are full of this cry of, How long, O Lord? The prophetic books are full of calls for God's people to be God's people to prepare for God's kingdom to come, for God to set all things right. How long, O oh Lord? And the early Christians knew this concept too. In fact, the phrase kingdom of God, <clears throat> the phrase kingdom of God pretty quickly became synonymous with the gospel message. Uh, the kingdom of God is what God is doing in the person of Jesus. It doesn't negate the real-world elements of the Jewish understanding. In fact, all that stuff, that God is about restoration of the oppressed and the exiled, calling for full allegiance against false gods and absolute claims of rulers, that is exactly what the gospel is about. We are citizens of the kingdom of God because of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not ethereal or otherworldly. It's about this world here and now. It is a vision of hope. Where, like the prophet Malachi says, those who oppress, those who steal wages and hold workers down, who ignore the orphans and the widows, who enact violence against the immigrants as strangers receive justice. The call we hear in the Gospels is a call to move into a new way of life. The call of the kingdom of God is not escapism. It's not a dualist either or of flesh versus spirit. It's a completely revolutionary call to enact justice and goodness in a world that seems increasingly divided and just plain mean. Prepare the way of the Lord. We started off talking about preparation as if it were this set of tasks that we needed to do to get ready for some big event. 
And there's truth to that. But if we stop there, we miss out on some important nuances of the Greek and Hebrew words that the Bible uses. So when we talk about preparation now, it's like the things we need to do to get ready for something more important. It's like setting everything up for some big event, the Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas. It's training for a big race or studying for a test or writing your sermon before Saturday night or practicing an instrument or packing before a trip. All these things are like making sure our ducks are all in a row and everything is in order and ready to go for some other event. And there's truth to that. Uh, Thanksgiving would be pretty rough if you didn't cook anything. I feel like I'd be pretty disappointed. Uh, big races are terrible experiences if you don't train for them. Uh, it's, a very, it's very apparent when someone hasn't practiced his or her instrument enough. And how bad of a vacation would you have if you didn't bring any clothes? But there's an added element in the Greek and Hebrew that we don't have in the English word prepare. Uh, the Hebrew word uses old, uh, used in Old Testament texts like Isaiah and Malachi is the word pane. Go. Uh, which looks like this in Hebrew, uh, but it's pretty similar to English. It uh, implies a turning to, an attending to, clearing out, getting ready. Uh, it's a very active verb. Um, and the Greek word used in the Gospels is this word, hetoimatso, uh, which is the really interesting one. Uh, in many ways, it's an eschatological word. Uh, in the context of the Gospels, here it's very connected to what God is about. Etoimatsu here is a word that aims to capture the creative and redemptive work of God in the world. It's almost like a dual focus word, like be ready to go, but also get a move on bringing about the actual event of God's work in the world. The, the Jewish people had this concept in mind that's captured by the phrase tikkun olam, which means reparation of the world, the work of setting things right. Hetoimatso, preparing the way of God, is the act of tikkun olam, of working to set things right. This is a call that we hear John making in the Gospels. It's the first thing we hear in the book of Mark. And we hear it pretty early on in Matthew and Luke as well. Uh, and actually John, too, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. It's an invitation to join in the work of healing our world. The theology of the kingdom of God in the New Testament is fascinating. We've touched on it in past sermons. Uh, so without going too far into it, basically the New Testament understands the kingdom of God is both here right now and yet not yet. Like God is broken into this world in the person of Jesus, but things are still not right this was true for the original audiences of the Gospels, and it's true for us now. Things are not right. And I don't know about you, but lately I felt like that is a superbly unrealistic and hopeless task. Repair this world how? It often feels like we have these grand expectations that God will act in mighty ways and these grand supernatural encounters that completely supersede anything of the physical world. And while that may be true sometimes, we miss so much when we are looking just for that. That was the exact expectation of the first century Jewish people. They held on to this idea that the Messiah, God's prophet, who would lead the way to God's purging of evil uh, and the establishment of God's kingdom. They, like, held on to that idea that God would come in and do something outrageously supernatural. Uh, and there were many people who claimed to be the Messiah. 
That seems a little weird to think about that. But by the time John the Baptist and Jesus came along, the people were probably suffering from a little bit of Messiah fatigue. Uh, their reactions probably ranged anywhere from like elation and excitement, like, yeah, this guy's actually going to do it this time, to skepticism because so many others who claimed to be Messiah didn't pan out. Like, I imagine Jesus walking in and saying, I'm the Messiah, and everybody's like, again? We're going to do this again? Uh, to probably some alarm and concern that the established order was going to be upset. Uh, they were looking for God to be clear, to be unmistakably, supernaturally God. And then God comes as a baby. A tiny, fragile, weak infant. Completely dependent on his parents to keep him alive. How does that even make sense? This is how the kingdom of God breaks into this world? I mean, how do we even prepare for that? <laughs> how do we prepare? How do we both get ready for and work to bring about a kingdom where the last are first and the least are the greatest? It's very easy for us to over-spiritualize this, to talk about ourselves as needy and fragile. Uh, but can we recognize that some of us have to work a little bit harder or might be a little bit needier or more fragile than others? Can we admit that we don't have it right uh, that we might not be the ones necessarily being talked about, uh, that we fail each other, that we may fall more into the role of the oppressor than the oppressed, especially those of us who are white in this room. Can we own our darkness, and can we honor our glory? Can we really believe that God is for all of us? All of us. This feels super overwhelming especially in our tense and very divided world. I have struggled myself with feeling very disillusioned over the past few weeks about how we live together in this world and how do we fix that. We tried to start doing just a little bit of work in what is hopefully a healing direction last Sunday night as several of us gathered to listen to each other, to hear each other's stories and experiences, and to honor each other as we process where we have headed and are heading as a country. And I'll be honest, a week later, and I'm still wrestling with whether or not that was even helpful. I believe it is cognitively, but the demons of despair still lurk in my shadows. It was very easy to get caught up in despair and feeling overwhelmed by how massive our issues and struggles are. It was very easy to feel like God needs to do something grand and spectacular. And God comes as a baby. I saw a post on Facebook from one of our people here uh, last week or so that quoted the poet and psychologist Clarissa Pincola Estes. I think I said that right. But the quote is, uh, ours is not the task in fixing the entire world all at once, but stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. We can't fix this world. We're not big enough. But what we can do is our part here in our local spaces, in our relationships, in our communities, in our city, in ourselves, we can hear the invitation to create goodness, to create avenues for life, for flourishing, for wholeness in our day-to-day. -day. That's what it is to prepare. It's hearing the call to repent, to turn to God. It's an invitation to join in, to create with God, to do good work. When we notice, when we hear each other, we're preparing the way of the Lord. 
when we respond to our neighbor's needs, we are preparing the way of the Lord. When we support and advocate for those around us who don't share the same privilege we might, both in direct action and in support for social policies on behalf of the marginalized, we are preparing the way of the Lord. When we make a meal for someone who's sick or just had a baby or just needs a friend, we are preparing the way of the Lord. When we are kind to each other, when we listen to each other and validate the truth of another's experience, we are preparing the way of the Lord. When we respond to the deep desires of our being to make goodness and beauty and truth, we can do our part to prepare the way of the Lord, to create with God, to bring about shalom, to repair even our own little corner of this planet. With this invitation, we can begin to imagine something more. I think we often underutilize and undervalue our imaginations, especially when it comes to creatively responding to something that could overwhelm us or might seem beyond our capability or control. But imagination plays a super important part in how we live and move and respond. Our imagination is not a fleeting, whimsical escapism, but rather a prophetic, creative way of figuring out how we can live and move in this world. That movement, that preparation, that creative response to God's invitations to be part of what God is doing in this world, this is what we're invited to in the Advent season as we wait for Jesus. Uh, the worship team can head back up. If you take out your connection cards, that would be fantastic. I have a few questions for you, and they will be on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, feel free to take as much time as you need uh, to respond, but there is much for us to chew on and work over as we head out of here. Uh, first question is, what is one way, like practical way, that you can participate in the kingdom of God, that you can create or bring life in your little corner of the world? Who do you see in need around you? Where is shalom broken? Uh, and second, it's important to name and acknowledge our resistance. Uh, the places where we push back or dissociate or avoid God and ourselves. That's the starting point for figuring out where to go from here. Naming those things and identifying the resistance. So where do you feel resistance to this invitation? What unsettles you? What bothers you? What makes you want to push back, dissociate, avoid? Uh, think about other things besides this invitation to join in with what God is about. Uh, take a few minutes uh, to process this, these and write down any thoughts you have on your connection cards. Uh, and I'll close us in prayer. And the worship team will lead us in one more song. God, you are here. You are working in this world. Will you awaken us to you? Will you... Uh, Will you inspire our imaginations to begin to, to join you in your work of a world where the least are the greatest and the last are first? Help us to overcome resistance. Help us to... Uh, work through these things together to do the good work of knowing ourselves and who you have created us to be. 
Help us to hear your call, your invitation to prepare the way for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.